Last week we looked at Hebrews chapter 11 and we saw God's hall of faith. All these Old Testament examples of faith. And then we are going to see this week in Hebrews chapter 12 and 13 that the men and women who demonstrated their faith in God through their tough times, you know, all of them had trials and tribulations. We will see that this week the key word is endure. We will see the word endure used several times throughout chapters 12 and 13. You'll see it in verse 1 of chapter 12, translated as patience. You'll see it in verse 2, 3, 7, and 20. And this word endure just means to bear up under trial to continue when the going gets tough. And that's something that we can all learn from. And we'll see a little tidbit right when we get going here uh, about endurance. Chapter 13 is going to be mostly just a list of various instructions for us as Christians to live by. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. A beautiful opening to this chapter. We see, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Now, this is talking about those men and women that we looked at in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, The author is not saying that these men and women are sitting on a cloud looking at us. We are not their entertainment. They have moved on to much bigger and better things by this point. Um, So that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that they're watching us. Rather, he's saying that we have them as an example. They bear witness, they bear testimony that their faith was genuine. And that is what he's saying. We can look back at these people and see their genuine faith. So using that example, let's put forth our own example of genuine faith. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us lay aside every weight. The author likens our Christian life, our walk with Christ, to a foot race. And there's no doubt in my mind that this author, I think it's Paul, is looking at the Greek games. They would have been contemporary with his time, and there were races that were run. And these runners, these athletes, would compete completely nude. They would literally throw aside every weight that could have possibly held them back. They were so dedicated to their sport that they would starve themselves before their race to cut any excess weight that they might be holding on to. So they were literally cutting away every weight that could hold them back. Now, What I don't want you to do is go home for a Sunday jog and get arrested and tell them that my pastor told me that I had to cut away every weight that was holding me back. Don't do that. That's not what we're saying. Um, This is a spiritual example, okay? Let us lay aside every weight. The idea here is simply to cast off everything that is weighing you down from competing in this Christian life successfully. Anything that is holding you back. These things aren't necessarily sinful. This can be a good career. It can be something that just occupies too much of your time. And those things we may need to cut away. Paul wrote that to him all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And that's the idea that we're talking about here. And the sin which so easily ensnares us. Now we are talking about sin, okay? 
the weight, not necessarily sin, the sin which so easily ensnares us, pretty straightforward. The idea is one of a flowing robe or something that these runners could put on, but it would hinder them. It would ensnare them easily. Uh, One translation says, the sin that doth so easily beset us. It's this idea of being entangled in sin and that hindering you from running the race effectively. You don't want to get caught up in your robe. We want to be productive Christians. Sin quickly wraps itself around us and can hinder us from being productive. Let us run with endurance, there's that word endurance, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What is this race that is set before us? It's our lives with Christ. That is our Christian race. It's like a long stretch of country road before you. You can see it all the way out in the distance, but you don't know what lies on that path. And each one of us have different paths. You know, we're not all going to face the same exact trials, but each one of us is accountable for how we deal with those things. And we'll look at how we can deal with trials later on in this little passage. The race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He says, looking unto Jesus. And this just means to fix our gaze upon Jesus. We have looked at this cloud of witnesses, but we're not fixing our gaze on that, those witnesses in chapter 11. We are fixing our gaze on the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. The word looking unto is translated um, as looking, and it carries two meanings. The first is to turn one's eyes towards something. The second is to turn one's mind towards something. I believe that both meanings are applicable here. We want to set our gaze on Jesus. Uh, In the strength and conditioning world, we tell our athletes to look straight ahead of them when they're running. So if they're at top speed, we don't want them looking down. Because if you're playing football, you get blindsided that way. You want to have your eyes up looking to the horizon. If we picture our Christian race, we want to set our eyes on the horizon, that hope that we have in Jesus. It says that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He authored this plan of salvation, and he finished this plan of salvation. He is the lamb slain, before the foundation of the world, from Revelation 13, 8. And on the cross, he settled our sin debt. It is finished, he said. He is both the author and the finisher, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. I've got a newsflash for you. Jesus didn't enjoy being on that cross. He despised the shame that was heaped up upon him. He despised it. He did not take pleasure in it. But he carried what the Father had set before him out to fruition. He did what he knew he had to do. He placed the will of the Father above his own will in the flesh. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How did he endure that great suffering on the cross? It tells us here. His eyes were fixed on the joy that was set before him. The Greek word translated as set before literally means to be placed before the eyes. There was joy placed before his eyes. Jesus had his eyes fixed on that joy like we are to have our eyes fixed on Jesus. 
Jude 24 tells us that Christ's joy is to present his church blameless before the Father. And what a joyous day that will be. And that is my hope. That is my anchor. The anchor for our souls is that hope in Jesus and being reunited in such a physical, spiritual, in every way possible, reunited with him. That's how he endured the cross. That joy that was set before him to present us faultless and blameless before the Father. And it was the only way that we could be presented as faultless. Do you remember Jesus praying, said, God, take this cup from me, this cup of suffering that he knew was just ahead. If there was any way possible for Jesus to not have to endure what he endured and still let us enter into communion with God, I have no doubt that God would have taken that way. He would have spared his son. But that was not the case. It was not by the law. It was not by righteous works. It was by nothing but the blood of Christ that we can be presented as a faultless and blameless bride. It says he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is alluding to him being the finisher of our faith. He is the finisher or perfecter of our faith. And in the Greek, this faith is, has a definite article before it. It should read, the author and finisher of the faith, which is shared by each one of us. Having completed this redemptive work, he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He is waiting until all things are brought under him, brought under subjection to him. He's waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. And what a glorious day that will be for us. Verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. Maybe you don't know how to feel about that. I don't know. I don't like to be scourged. We'll take a look at it. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. The author encourages us to consider Christ. And in this historical context that we have, he asks the Hebrew believers, consider Christ. This is not the first time that he has told them to consider Christ. He's done it a couple of other times in this letter. If Jesus' joy comes from presenting us faultless before God, my joy comes from the same source, but it's kind of flipped around. I have joy that he will be presenting me faultless and blameless before God. What joy there is to be had. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin the readers of this letter apparently had not been hit very hard by persecution yet. And we know on this side of history that it's coming, and it's coming in full force. Now, I think that the author of this letter probably knew that too. He probably had an idea that, and these guys are about to get hit with some pretty heavy stuff. So he says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Also, if this is Paul writing this letter, he would have been very acquainted with bloodshed for Christ. You know, there's this list that he gives in one of the letters to the Corinthians. I've been beaten, mocked, scourged, stoned, killed. And yet he 
keeps getting back in the game. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. So now we're switching gears a little bit. We're talking about the discipline of God. My high school linebackers coach would say, if I didn't care, I wouldn't waste my breath grilling you. And that's kind of what we see here, you know, in different words. God, if you are his son, he will chasten you. He will discipline you to create in you the image of Christ. Sanctification. We all hear hear that word all the time. But God will literally use trials and tribulations to form you into a person who more closely resembles Christ. Don't despise this correction from God because he's not punishing you, rather correcting you. Punishment is for a judge, but chastening is for a father. God's punishment for sin has already been settled on the cross. He doesn't have to punish you for your sin. Okay, and we see that in Job's case. You know, his friends came to him with good intentions, I will add. They said, man, you must be hiding some kind of sin from God. He's just punishing you for that. You know, Job's family was taken away. His house was taken away. His livestock, everything, his health was taken away. Yet, that was not a punishment from God. And we see in the later chapters of Job that those friends were speaking way out of turn. They did not have any clue what they were talking about. So God was not punishing Job. It was rather a trial. He was refining Job. He was testing him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. This is in the present progressive tense, which would read like this. For whom the Lord is loving... He is chastening. That that gives it a, a little bit of different feel to it, doesn't it? If God is loving you, he's chastening you. Interesting to look at it that way. And scourges every son whom he receives. We should be rejoicing when we face certain trials because this is a mark of a true son. If God didn't love you, he wouldn't waste his breath grilling you. If I get a call from the principal's office at my son's school, and they say, hey, your son and a few other guys were vandalizing the bathrooms in the school. I need you to come up here and talk to them. When I get to the school, and there's a little group of ratty teenage boys sitting in the principal's office, Who am I going to go up to and discipline? I could care less about the other kids. I'm going up to my son. I'm going to give him the what for. You know what I mean? You're not going to go up to somebody else's kid. Just like God is not going to go up to somebody else's kid. He goes to his own and he applies discipline. When God disciplines us, It's because he loves us as sons. Verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. That's a big warning to us. Then you are illegitimate and you are not sons. What parent who loves his child doesn't deal with them, doesn't discipline them? I know every one of us has had the experience where we slip up at work or at school, we do something we know we shouldn't, and we immediately get caught. 
we're sitting in the boss's office and principal's office, whatever, whatever it is, thinking, man, why did I get caught? Everybody else is doing the same exact thing, and I'm the one who gets caught? It's the first time I've ever done anything. Well, God will discipline his sons. And there is this certain way that our sins get found out. So if you are a son, this is a warning that the sins will be found out. You will be held accountable, whether in this life or the next. But it is actually funny to see that happen. You know, I've, I've been on the receiving end of that. You know, the first time I slip up, I get caught. And you look around and see everyone else, unbelievers, who are just doing what they want. And nobody seems to care. But that's how it is. If you are a son, you'll be disciplined. If you are without chastening, then you are illegitimate and not sons. We should indeed be very afraid if we can perpetually get away with sin. This is an indication that you are not a true son. But if you are a son of God, you can rest assured that you will be corrected. And we must, we must be careful how we react to that correction. Just like with your parents. If you say, ha, 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 that didn't hurt. Give me again. Oh, boy. Some new kind of implement is about to be invented. Be careful how you're reacting to God's correction. Some Christians can have a tendency to get bitter and turn away from God because of his discipline. But let us not grow bitter. Let us grow better through the discipline of God. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Back up to verse 9. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. So he's making a comparison between our earthly father and our heavenly father. They chastened us as seemed best to them. Our earthly fathers may discipline us in accordance to what they believe to be right. And sometimes it's undue. I don't mean to pick on my dad, but one time I didn't do anything and I got a spanking for it. And sorry, I'm being for real. And so that discipline did not land correctly. It was not effective in what it was intended to do. He did what he thought was best. And I don't blame him for that. He's a great dad. He disciplined me well. (laughs) Disclaimer. Um, But the Heavenly Father, he doesn't discipline us based on something that he thinks may be correct. He knows everything. His discipline is fair. His discipline the text tells us, is for our profit. It's not for him, it is purely for us. For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. And that's the end of this discipline, that we may be partakers of his holiness. He wants to conform us into that image. Now, keep in mind that our end is not just a place. Our destination is not just a place, but it is literally an image. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ. 
that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. We can all get on board with that. I mean, I can't argue with that. And it's not that chastening is fun. Discipline isn't fun, neither for your dad or for you. You know, sometimes your dad may have said, oh, son, this is going to hurt me way more than it hurts you. If you're a little kid, you're thinking, yeah, right. That stings. And what's the first thing that goes through your mind when your dad leaves the room after he's just given you the what for? Ah, nobody loves me. Why am I here? But it's because he loves you that he disciplines you. It's because he loves you. Nobody likes being whooped by their dad. It hurts. But now you may be able to look back on those times of discipline and see that it was actually good for you. You can appreciate the love he showed in correcting you. We must discipline ourselves into taking God's word at face value. He chastens us because he loves us, and we have to trust in that. And one day we may even see why he did what he did. Maybe. The correct attitude towards God's discipline is that we endure by faith. You see in verse 7. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. This is allowing God to work out his perfect plan in our lives. It's that blessed afterward of verse 11 that keeps us going. Chastening is for our profit that we might be sharers of his holiness. And our submission brings the most glory to his name. Verse 12, therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. Verse 14 says, pursue peace with all people and holiness. Literally, run swiftly after peace and after holiness. Verse 15, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this, many become defiled. The root of bitterness can take root in our hearts if we do not approach these difficult situations correctly. You may ask yourself, why God? Why did she get married and I didn't? Why did you take him away when you did? Why does he get the job and I didn't? Why? We must be careful with the question why. Ask yourself, even if God did show me why, would I be able to understand his reasoning? Even if he did show you his plan, would you be able to understand that? Would seeing his plan actually help us deal with our situation as we have it laid out? That's just knowledge. Knowledge can only get you so far. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 tells us to let our requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This verse says that the peace of God surpasses in value all understanding. Peace is worth more than understanding. 
So you can keep the understanding if you want, if that's been given to you, but I'm going to take the peace myself. And we do have peace in Jesus Christ. As the author stated earlier in Hebrews, our hope in Christ, that eternal destiny, is the anchor for our souls. That's what we hang on to. When we're faced with the trials, lean on that anchor, and it will steady you through the storm. He says, and by this, many become defiled. Now, unfortunately, this root of bitterness grows quickly. The author says, springing up. That's not a slow process. A spring, if you release a spring, it's shooting somewhere really quick. Springing up. That's why we have to keep bitterness in its place. We've got to nip it in the bud. The text says that the root of bitterness springs up. All too many people have begun down the right path, but they fall away because of a bitter attitude towards Christ, towards the chastening of God. Verse 16, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Verse 16 says, Fornicator, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. Fornicator here is talking about spiritual fornication. This term is also used to describe the Israelites in the Old Testament when they get caught up into idolatry. Okay, The spiritual fornication of the Israelites was when they turned away from their covenant with God and went chasing after other gods. That is spiritual fornication. Profane person simply means ungodly or irreligious. Someone who wants nothing to do with religion, with God. You remember the story of Esau and Jacob. Esau was out hunting while Jacob stayed back and cooked in the kitchen. He was that type of guy. I like cooking. I'm just joking. When Esau returned home, he was famished from being out in the woods all day, but he didn't have any food. Jacob could never pass up a good opportunity to deceive somebody, to take advantage. So what does Jacob do? He says, hey, hey, brother, welcome back. I see you're hungry. (laughs) Here's this bowl of lentil soup. Would you like to trade this for your birthright? Esau, being desperate and not caring anything about this birthright, not caring about spiritual things, took what his flesh desired. He took the bowl of lentils, and he ate it, and for a moment he was satisfied. Until we see later, Jacob took Esau's blessing too. When Isaac was blind, their father, Esau was out hunting, going to make their dad a you know, beef stew or something, venison stew. He was going out hunting, going to make a savory meal for his father. Jacob came into his father and tricked him into blessing him as he would have blessed Esau the firstborn. So first Jacob takes the birthright. Then Jacob takes the blessing. I think Esau is pretty bitter at this point. In fact, Genesis 27.34 records Esau's reaction to hearing that his blessing was stolen. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. Esau was so bitter towards Jacob for what he'd done that he sought to kill him. The text says that Esau found comfort 
in intending to kill his brother. When he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Now, a distinction must be made here. Esau sought the blessing diligently with tears, not repentance. He did not seek repentance in his heart. If he had, we know that God is gracious, and he would have granted repentance to Esau. That's not what he was seeking with tears. He seeks out the physical, the material things, that bowl of lentils, the inheritance from his father. That's what he was looking at and seeking with tears. If Esau was repentant in his heart, we know that he could have brought a lamb, sacrificed the lamb, and he would have found repentance. That's not what he chose to do. He did not find any place in his heart to repent. He certainly could have. This is the example that we're given of bitterness corrupting a relationship both Esau with his brother and Esau with God. Bitterness snuck into Esau and took advantage of him. And what a sharp, pointed example this is to us. Verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to the blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more, For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to, the, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. What's he saying here? In a nutshell, he's saying that what you have now in Mount Zion is better than what the Israelites had in Mount Sinai. So he continues this comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Exodus 20.19 records the terrified words of the Israelites. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But let not God speak to us, or we will die. God had spoken out loud to the camp of the Israelites. Roughly two million people, I would say. This loud, booming voice of God speaking directly to the people. I don't blame them for being scared. That would be a terrifying experience. But they were so scared, they told Moses, Uh Uh-uh, you go meet with him. We don't want any part of that. You just tell us what he tells you, and that'll be good with us. Okay, We don't want to get too close. Now, when God was on Mount Sinai, it says that there were great thunderings and lightnings and clouds surrounded the mountain. God was in the midst of that, that cloud, and he ordered them not to come up to the mountain or they would be killed. They could not approach God. There was no way for them to do that. But Moses, he granted access. Moses could go up the mountain. It's actually kind of humorous how many times God has Moses come up and down the mountain. You know, go down, tell the people, come back up and see me. Go down, come up. As a side note. 
We are no longer brought to Mount Sinai, where there's trembling and fear, but to Mount Zion, the mountain of God. Verses 22 through 24 give us a little glimpse into what we will see in heaven. An innumerable company of angels, the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, God, the judge of all, the spirits of just men made perfect, and Jesus, the mediator. Verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The first time I read this verse, what popped into my mind was Abel's blood being spilled on the ground, crying out. That's the first thing that I thought of. With a little bit more contemplation and a little more study, I think that that is not exactly right. I think he's talking about the blood of the offering Abel offered to God. We know that Abel's offering was accepted, while Cain's offering was rejected. Abel came by the blood of a lamb. Cain came by the fruit of his fields, the work of his hands. While Abel's offering was accepted, that blood offering, the blood offering of Jesus is better. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Though God accepted Abel's offering, how much more does he accept the offering of Jesus Christ, his son? How much more does he accept that? To the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. You know, that interpretation also goes along with the whole book of Hebrew better. You know, we're all, this whole time we've been talking about sacrifices, priests, blood offerings, religious systems. And that would fit with that much better than just the blood of Abel himself. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on the earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven whose voice then shook the earth, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. On Sinai, God's voice shook the earth. He will again shake the earth, but also heaven. The old heaven and the old earth are going to pass away. The author tells us that the things being shaken on earth and in heaven will be removed. Those things will be no more. And only those things which cannot be shaken will remain. What can't be shaken? Spirit. The works that we do for Christ. I will remind you that the works we do for selfish interests, for worldly gain, burnt up. They'll be gone with the rest of the material world. They will be removed, and only those things which cannot be shaken will remain. The spirit and the works that were done out of an abundance of love for God. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 15 concerns the testing of the works and the consuming fire of God. I'll read verses 9 through 15 for us. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. 
For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our firm foundation. There's no other foundation on which you can build salvation. Salvation alone is accomplished through Jesus, and he is the firm foundation, our cornerstone. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work, of which sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through the fire. So we're talking about believers here. Even though we all do things for ourselves, we all act selfishly sometimes, those works will be burnt away as wood, hay, and stubble. But that does not mean that we will be cast out of heaven. We do not lose our salvation, and that's not what it's talking about here. He himself will be saved, yet so as through the fire. But those works that were done selfishly will disappear. They will be burnt up, and everything is laid bare before the Father. There is nothing, no thing that we've done can hide. It will be laid bare. Let each one take heed how he builds on the foundation of Christ. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If you build on that foundation with righteousness, with goodness, which is a necessary and a natural outflowing of your salvation, you will be rewarded. Verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, God is going to tear down this current creation and create a new, the new heaven and the new earth. Since we are receiving that kingdom, which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. It is by grace that we can serve God. If it was not for grace, my actions earned the penalty of death. If it was not for God stepping into my world and offering his son there, I would not be able to serve God. I couldn't do it effectively. Couldn't do it at all. Could not come into God's presence. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And there is a reverence and a godly fear that comes with this realization that I am so far below what he expects, I can't even approach him, except by the blood of the sacrifice, the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. Let us have grace, for our God is a consuming fire. What does fire do? I thought of three main functions of fire. One, it destroys. Two, it can purify. And three, it can make permanent. And the great thing about this consuming fire that is God is that you get to decide which side of that you're on. Are you going to be destroyed? Are you going to let this consuming fire purify you? Are you going to let it make things permanent in your life? That's the question. 
everyone will at some point experience the consuming fire of God. You get to decide how it affects you. Gold, when it's heated up by fire, it melts, turns into a liquid. The impurities in that gold rise to the top. There, you can scrape them off. You have a more pure product at the end of that refining process. When a sword is crafted, the craftsman heats the sword up to incredibly high temperatures. Then he dunks it in a bath of water to cool it down. This process hardens the steel. It makes what the craftsman has done permanent. At the end, when you are taken either by yourself or with the whole church with you, you will be made permanent. Your spirit goes off to be with the Lord. It is refining, but it is also going to make things permanent. What will it do for you? Because you can't escape it. There is no escaping this consuming fire that is God. Everyone will come in contact with it. But you decide how it affects you. Are you being purified by it? Will you let that purification process happen by the chastening of God, by his discipline? He's happy to do it. He is a father. He wants to discipline us, correct us, and train us up in the way we should go. He wants to do that for you. Or will this fire consume you? Will it destroy you? If you're on the wrong side, it will. Will it make things permanent for you? And if you're a believer, it will make some things permanent. You decide. We're going to stop our study there for this morning, and we will wrap up chapter 13 next week, Lord willing. I had intended to get through chapter 13, but that did not happen. So we'll have a good study on chapter 13 next week. For now, let's wrap up in a word of prayer.